We have the, uh, the sacred privilege again today to open up God's word and hear from him. You know, God speaks through his word. That's how he does it now in our day. And I pray that you and I will have ears to hear. We're in the book of Philippians, if you want to flip there. Philippians chapter 3. And we're up to verse 10 today. Verse 10. We'll read it in just a moment, but just to recap just a little bit, the Apostle Paul, he's just told the Philippians about his Jewish resume, if you will, his pedigree, his background. And he laid out that whole resume and told them what he had built his entire life around before Christ changed him. He had built his entire life around law-keeping, morality, following the law of Moses, at least outwardly. And he says in verse 5, just to indicate to us how serious he was about it, he says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul was a zealous, law-abiding Jew of the strict sect of Phariseeism. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, is what he calls himself there as well. And if we were to just go up in the sky from a bird's eye level and just go over the top of the storyline of the Bible in all of our minds for a moment, we would see way back in the Old Testament that God brings his chosen people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt with these mighty miracles, and he begins to lead them through the wilderness to the land that he had promised his servant Abraham, way back in the book of Genesis. And they, in the wilderness, get to Mount Sinai, and God there gives them his law, the law of Moses. He says, here's how my people ought to live before me. It's called the law of Moses because God gave it to Moses to give to the people. And the law was good in itself. It's something that I want to make clear in case it wasn't last week. Paul himself calls the law holy and righteous and good. In Romans 7 and verse 12. The law is a reflection of God's holy character. God commands them to be holy because he is holy. So he says, I am holy and I will have for myself a holy people. But we read last time in Philippians 3 and verses 4 to 9 that Paul said that all, the, all that law keeping that he built his entire life around was what to him now? It was rubbish. It was like manure to him. Garbage. Now, was he saying the law itself was garbage? No, absolutely not. What was he saying? He was saying that he had put his confidence in that law keeping as a way to make himself right with God. And he saw now... That doesn't work. It's not what God's looking for. God does not count people righteous on that basis. He counts them righteous by this. 
if they believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, it's not about having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, verse 9. It's about putting my faith in the one who himself was the perfect law keeper, Jesus. And we might say, well, why in the world did God give them all these laws to people who can't even keep them? Why would he do that? That's an excellent question to ask, and fortunately, it's one that the Bible answers for us. What was the ultimate purpose of the law? Paul himself explains it to us in other places. Here's one in Galatians 3. He explains that the law was like our guardian. It was like our tutor, our schoolmaster, our moral caretaker who does this. It brings us to Christ. That's what the law was ultimately intended to do. To show us how sinful we really are and to reveal our need for the Savior. Romans 7 says that through the law, sin became exceedingly sinful. Beyond measure, he says. The law points out our sinfulness in ways that we would not have ever known without the law. Is God's righteous standard. And there's only one person who has ever kept it to the extent that God requires. God requires perfection, doesn't he? It's pictured in the sacrifices way back. You had to bring a what type of lamb? A spotless one. He requires perfection. And so the Lord Jesus himself comes down to the earth. He lives a life of perfection, of perfect law keeping, both outwardly and inwardly, the part that most people didn't keep. The inward part. And so we put our faith in the one who did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so I said all that to point out that when we hear Paul talking about these things that he now counts as loss and as rubbish, don't think that he's calling the law itself rubbish. He's simply saying that the supposed righteousness that you might think you get by trying to be a good law keeper by trying to be this moral person, we might say, that's what's rubbish. It's a mirage. You can't earn righteousness that way. You can't keep the law to the extent that God requires. So there's no righteousness actually there. What we need is not a list of a bunch of check boxes that we've marked off. What we need is a new heart. And that's what God gives us in Christ. So... The law itself, good, holy, righteous, but our law-keeping, shoddy, incomplete, not sufficient to save us. Even for a man like Paul who says, at least outwardly, I, I take that as outwardly blameless when he says that. The man who is a Pharisee who is outwardly keeping it very carefully, it still wasn't the way to righteousness with God. That only comes through faith in Christ. So now let's look at the next two verses, which is what we're going to cover for today. Verses 10 and 11. And this message is entitled, That I May Know Him. Coming straight from the text in verse 10. And why don't we, just for a bit of context, let's begin reading at verse 8. And then we'll work into verse 10 and 11. 
It says this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. We'll stop right there. So, when Paul met Jesus on the Damascus road and he came to find out that righteousness was not attained through law-keeping but through faith in Christ, that was the end for him, right? Salvation secure, end of story, nothing further to talk about or do, right? No, that was just the beginning for Paul, just the beginning And so it is for every Christian. Being made right with God through faith in Christ is the point of what we call justification. That's when you're made right with God. That's instant. Praise the Lord for that. That can never be taken away. But what comes after justification? Something called sanctification. Where... You're this new creature in Christ, and God actually works in you to form you to be more like Jesus himself in your thinking, in your conduct, in your attitudes, in your motives, and so forth. So here we have Paul's pursuit of sanctification in a way, and this ought to be our pursuit as well. Everyone wants to know how to live the Christian life, don't they? What's the secret? Preachers want to know. Seminary students want to know. New believers want to know. Seasoned believers want to know. This passage right here gives us some valuable insight into what the Christian life is all about. It's summed up in the first phrase of verse 10. And then he expounds upon it after that a little bit. That I may know him. There's the key. That I may know him. You want the key to living the Christian life? Knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. And it's not about knowing facts about Christ, although that is good and necessary. It's necessary to know facts about Christ in order to know him. But Knowing facts about him is not the same as knowing him, is it? This is what you might call an experiential knowledge. Knowing facts about my wife isn't the same as knowing her. Other people know facts about her. That doesn't mean they really know her, right? They haven't walked the road of life with her in the same way. So this has to do with an experience of Christ in your life. 
And we'll see that that's the case by the way Paul expounds on it. Here's another illustration. When I worked at the hospital, part of my job was to give people oral contrast to drink before their CT scan. Have any of you had this stuff? Some of you are saying, well, I wish you wouldn't have reminded me. I tried to forget about that nasty stuff. We used to give this stuff called Ready Cat. It was a milky, chalky, white stuff that didn't taste very good, so they felt like they had to artificially flavor it with some fruitiness or something, and most people didn't like it very much at all. But within the past year or so, maybe, um, we had... he had a different kind of contrast we started giving. It was clear. It was just an iodinated stuff, and it didn't have very much of a taste at all, thankfully. But my, part of my job would just be to explain to the patients what to do, when to drink it, how much to drink, answer any questions they had about it. And I'm sure you can imagine what the number one question was. What's it taste like? And I had to say... Most people tell me it tastes like water. That was true. But I had to say that because I had never tried it. I had learned about it. I read about it. I knew facts about it. But I had never tasted it for myself. That's the difference in knowing about something and knowing something by experience. Knowing something experientially is the way I'm using that word. By experience. I mean, here's another example. You can read read in a book that honey is sweet. But that's different than taking a big old spoonful and putting it in your mouth and tasting it, right? So when Paul says, that I may know him, verse 10. He's not talking about knowing more stuff about him. He already knew quite a bit about him. He was an apostle. What Paul is talking about is an experiential knowledge of Christ. I really want to know Christ by experience. I want to experience what he experienced. I want to experience his power in my life. Now, having said that, does experiential knowledge come by putting your Bible down and sitting there and hoping that Jesus will reveal himself to you in some other way? No. God has given us a Bible, and he speaks through it. He teaches us through his word. And it's by beholding Christ in the pages of Scripture that we become more like him. Listen to first, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We behold Him in the pages of Scripture, and somehow over time, we're transformed into that image of Christ. It's the work that he does in believers' lives. So don't think by experiential knowledge, I mean putting your Bible away and waiting for God to reveal himself some other way. No, no, no. This, the Bible, is how God reveals himself to us now. Before we had the full canon of Scripture, God did reveal himself in other ways. 
But now we have his full revelation from him in the pages of Scripture. How did he do it in the past? Hebrews gives us an example. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by what? His son. Jesus is God's word to man. And in the 21st century, there's not a place we can go to have a chat with Jesus in his bodily form. He's not around us in bodily form where we can talk to him, but we do have the scriptures which tell us all about him. And we need to know about him before we can experience the joy that comes through that relationship with him, okay? So when Paul says, that I may know him, it means more than just knowing facts about him, but it doesn't mean less than that, okay? Again, if I didn't know facts about my wife, I wouldn't know her very well. But the knowledge goes beyond the facts about her to an experience with her. Now, in what ways specifically did Paul want to know the Lord Jesus? The text gives us at least three. And I'm just going to bring up some simple slides. They're not going to have a lot of information on it. It's just going to be kind of a mental hanger to know where we're at. Okay? Number one... That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Before we talk about that in specific, let me point out something to us about these things that he's about to list off. And I meditated on this quite a bit. Um, Are these things in verses 10 and 11, are they gifts? From God, or are they goals for us to reach? In other words, are these privileges, or is this a pursuit that we're supposed to be after? And I think the best answer is that they're both. They're both. He's given these things to us as a gift in salvation, but we strive to experience them in their fullness. Every day. So yes, we have resurrection power given to us by the Spirit, but we should pursue the knowledge of that in more fullness as well. Maybe you could express it this way if this helps anyone think about this. Every Christian, regardless of their background, their mental state, how much they understand, how joyful they are, all that stuff, regardless of all that, Every Christian is going to be raised to eternal life one day, right? But does every Christian experience the joy of that fact in the same degree right now? No. There's the pursuit of sanctification to gain the actual experience of knowing what Christ has done in a way that we actually love it and cherish it and draw strength from it, and so forth. We want to feel the peace from his saving benefits, right? We want to feel the power from these things. We want to feel the joy that should result from what we know. Those are the experiential aspects of salvation. It's like if you received a gift 
but you didn't really know what you had until later down the road. That's what we're constantly after. We're looking at this gift we've been given and we say, I did not know how good a gift this was until now. I got the whole thing when I got it from the Lord, but it's better than I even thought it was. That's what grows in your sanctification. He doesn't give more of his spirit to one believer or another. No one is saved more than another believer. But what does differ from Christian to Christian, depending on where we're at in our sanctification, where we're at in that journey, is our appreciation for, our use of what God has given us in Christ. And Paul says here, he wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. What's that mean? Let me read a verse from Proverbs to you that will come to light in just a minute. Proverbs 28, verse 1. It says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The righteous are bold as a lion. The deep down, Felt knowledge that Christ really has overcome death and that you are really going to be raised with him makes a person as bold as a lion. It frees us to risk our lives for the sake of the gospel. It frees us to pour ourselves out in service to others. It frees us to suffer even. You know that, that constant fear of death that keeps a lot of people chained and really just enslaved to their own safety? Part of what it means to experience the power of Christ's resurrection is being so convinced of the truthfulness of God's promises that we can say, I'm going to obey Christ no matter how unsafe it may seem. The goal here is not my safety in this life. My eternal safety is already won. That's the safety that matters. If I die in the service of Christ, I'm just going to go be with him. Death's chain has been broken. God took some big old bolt cutters and sliced that thing in half with the resurrection of Christ. The groundwork is laid. Christ has already bought our victory there. Now we just have to live like it. We just have to take advantage of those benefits that he's won for us. So Paul knew about Jesus' resurrection. He isn't saying, I just want some more knowledge about his resurrection. No, he's saying, I want to experience for myself the power that raised Jesus from the grave. By the way, did you know that the Bible says that Christians have that power working in their lives? Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is praying for these Ephesian believers, and listen to what he prays for. He prays for them that they might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe 
according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. What's that saying? It's saying that God is working in us with the very same power that he used to raise Jesus from the dead. Same God, same power. Isn't that amazing? What kind of power is resurrection power, by the way? What kind of power is that? Think of the, think of the magnitude of that kind of power. The power that it takes to bring a person back from the dead. Can a doctor do that? No. Can a magician do that? Only God can do that. He's the only one who can. And just go back in your mind to that moment for a minute. Think of Christ laying there in that tomb. Dead as a doornail. He really died, in other words. He wasn't passed out. He wasn't just, he didn't just lose consciousness. He was dead. What blood was left in his body had coagulated at this point. His heart lays dormant, not beating. His lungs lifeless. And then, in the words of the Andrew Peterson song, he took one breath and put death to death. <laughs> Let me read part of that song to you. It's called His Heart Beats. His heart beats. His blood begins to flow, waking up what was dead a moment ago. And his heart beats. Now everything has changed because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins. His heart beats. He breathes in. His living lungs expand. The heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again. He breathes out. He is word and flesh once more. The Lamb of God slain for us is a lion ready to roar. And his heart beats. So crown him the Lord of life. Crown him the Lord of love. Crown him the Lord of all. He took one breath and put death to death. Where is your sting, O grave? How grave is your defeat? I know, I know his heart beats. I love that song. What a powerful picture that is. What a victorious moment in uh, redemptive history this was. When God raised Christ from the dead in power and glory. And brothers and sisters, we have that same power working in us. This is awesome. It is a very worthy exchange that Paul made that we should emulate. Paul exchanged his weakness and his impotence for God's power. We're weak. He is strong, right? Our pursuit, our goal should be to live in that strength. To know better what you have in Christ. Live like you have it. The righteous are as bold as a lion. Secondly, Paul says, not only do I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, but I want to share in his sufferings. 
You say, whoa, 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 suffering. You had me feeling all good at the resurrection power part. What are we talking about suffering for? And I fear this is just a foreign concept to us, especially in America, isn't it? We do everything possible to avoid suffering. And we should avoid some suffering if it's self-inflicted. You know, we should be wise with our finances. We should be wise with our health and so forth as much as it depends on us in order to not undergo self-inflicted suffering. It's good to do what we can do to avoid that kind of suffering, but Paul isn't talking about just any kind of suffering here. He says he wants to share in Christ's sufferings. And the word in the original language there for share is the word koinonia, and it means a participation in. He wants to participate in the suffering for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Another, word, another definition of that word is fellowship. He wants to have fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. He wants to be Christ's foxhole partner, so to speak. He wants to be identified with Christ in his sufferings. Now, I don't think this means Paul's going around looking for suffering or trying to suffer or trying to be persecuted. It just means in the course of Every day following Christ and having fellowship with him, he just wants to follow in his master's footsteps. He's not looking for the half Christ. He's not looking for a truncated Christ who gives out goodies and never suffers. That's not what the real Christ did. He says, if my master suffered, I'm going to. And it'll be a privilege because he is of surpassing worth to me. He's already said. And if we we make it our goal to avoid suffering for Christ, we're just going to miss out on a big part of knowing Christ. Think about what would happen if Christians everywhere decided to play it as safe as possible. We prayed for our missionaries by name this morning. Where would our missionaries be? Where would the missionaries be if everybody played it safe? They didn't play it safe. Where would the gospel be? To How would we get the gospel out if everybody's playing it safe? Part of being a Christian is being willing and ready to participate in the sufferings of Christ as a result of your obedience to him. Paul already said in chapter 1, verse 28, that it has been granted to us that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Philippians 1.29 And didn't Jesus tell his disciples in John 15, listen to what he said. John 15, 18-20, if you're taking notes. He said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, 
They will also persecute you, is what Jesus said. And the early disciples thought of suffering for Christ as a privilege, as an honor. When they were beaten for the gospel, whipped for the gospel, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Acts 5, 41. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Christ's name. So, in the same way, we ought to draw inspiration from that. We ought to count it an honor to suffer for Christ's sake. We ought to consider it a great fellowship with Him to suffer for the same reasons He did. So when the world hates you, remember that it hated Christ first. And take heart. For Jesus also said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So don't be ashamed of Christ. Glory in Christ. Boast in Him. Christians are those who do what? Back in verse 3. They glory in Christ Jesus. So share the gospel with those around you. The people in your life, your friends, your family, your co-workers, your acquaintances, even strangers. Find a way to work that in. There's many ways to do it. Share the gospel and keep sharing it. If people think you're weird or make fun of you, that's okay. That's mild, right, compared to what Jesus and the apostles went through. Share in his sufferings. Share in his sufferings. And know that you're blessed in doing so. Here's something that, that, that's beautiful that comes out of sharing in his sufferings. When we share in his sufferings, it's a way for a closer bond to form between us and the Lord. In fact, suffering makes us more like Christ. Suffering, you could almost think of it as a, as a chisel by an artist. With each scrape, it takes part of you away. And gradually, with many scrapes, perhaps, <laughs> many, you come to look more like the Lord Jesus. It was painful. It was hard, but you come out of it more like the master. And you love him more as well because he gave you another opportunity to see that he will not leave you. You and him went through some stuff together. And when you were in the fire, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel, you had the fourth man in the fire with you, helping you, sustaining you. First, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 1.5 says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. 
The more of Christ's sufferings we go through, the more fellowship we have in Christ's sufferings, the more comfort we also have. He doesn't leave us comfortless. Have you ever gone through something really hard, gone through some really hard times with somebody in particular, and really only they could understand it? Because they were the only ones with you. That's what happens when we share in Christ's sufferings too. When we suffer for his sake, we cling to him more. We go to him more. We trust him more. Why? Because he was there with us. Perhaps when nobody else was. And also, when the people of God, the church, when we suffer together for the gospel... We grow closer to one another in that way as well. There's a fellowship there that's formed with others in a way that I don't think could be formed otherwise when we suffer for Christ's sake together. A lot more could be said there as well. But Paul says, and we ought to say, let me know you better, Lord Jesus. Let me share in your sufferings. Then he goes on to another one. He says he wants to become like him in his death. To become like him in his death. Now, is he saying, I want to be crucified like Jesus was? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, I want to handle death the same way Christ did. I want to have the same mindset as he did. He just got through talking about Christ's mindset when he humbled himself back in chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Do you remember that? It says Christ had the mindset of a servant. He humbled himself and he was obedient to God all the way to the point of death. And Paul says in Philippians 2, 5, Have that kind of mindset in you. This is just the attitude of a person who wants to obey Christ no matter what comes, if death comes even. To be like Christ is to be obedient to the point of death. Didn't Jesus say again, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me, Matthew 16, 24. To take up your cross means get ready to die. That's what it means. Be willing to lay your life down. Deny yourself and follow me where I go, Jesus says. One commentator I was reading wrote this. I thought it was good. Christian life is cruciform in character. That means it's characterized by the cross it's cruciform and he says God's people even as they live presently through the power of Christ's resurrection are as their Lord forever marked by the cross the heavenly lion one must never forget is a slain lamb the glory we see it in Christ the glory comes after the suffering. Christ demonstrated that, and it's going to be the same for us. We're going to have a lot of tribulation in this life, but glory 
is coming. Resurrection is coming. And we have Christ by our side who will never leave us. So we can persevere, can't we? Christians are people who pursue these things. Becoming like Christ in every way. Including becoming like Him in His death. They recognize that if their master had to wear a crown of thorns. That they can't expect to wear a crown of roses. And Paul closes with this, verse 11. It's a statement that really is the end of these pursuits and these privileges to know Christ in these specific ways. Verse 11, look at it in your Bible. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And I found it interesting in my study that he actually uses a different word for resurrection in verse 11 than he does in verse 10. In verse 10, he uses the root word anastasis. But in verse 11, he, it's a more emphatic word. It's, it says exanastasis. So that word in verse 11, it literally means, the root of it means to stand up. And so it pictures this vivid picture of, of, of dead ones, they're laying down, and the resurrection ones, the resurrected ones, are standing up. And Paul is picturing himself as a raised person among the dead. At the end of the age, he wants to be among those who are standing up. And he doesn't know exactly how he's going to meet death. That's up to God. But by whatever means God sees fit, he wants to attain the resurrection from among the dead. However God wants to do it, I'm in his hands, he said. I just want to be found in him at the resurrection. I want to be standing. I want to be a standing one among dead ones. Have you ever thought about this? That uh, Christians are the only people who are actually equipped with the reason and the ability to sanely look death in the face and not fear it. Christians are the only ones who can do that sanely. An unbeliever who doesn't fear death is not thinking sanely. They're thinking irrationally because the only thing coming for him in that unbelieving state is God's judgment. But... For the Christian, what's coming for us in death? <laughs> Resurrection, glory, gain. Death is just this little door you walk through. Just open it up. Okay, that was it. All right, here's Christ. Just a little step. A little step that results in a massive gain. To live is Christ. To die is gain, he said already. So let's sum up here. This passage is a call for Christians to recognize what they have in Christ and to live like they really have it. To really experience the benefits of his grace. It's a call to make knowing Christ our aim, our pursuit, our goal. 
That is the ultimate goal in life, to know him. That is the pinnacle of life, to know Christ, the one who surpasses all in worth. And the way that we pursue that knowledge is first through beholding him in the word. That's foundational. Then we pursue obedience to him, which will inevitably result in suffering for his name, participating in his sufferings, even becoming like him in his death, in that we take the same mentality in death that he had. He was determined to obey his father no matter the cost. Not my will, father, but yours be done. And at the end of the age, when it's all said and done, Christians will be raised to glorious life and live with Christ forever in happiness and bliss. Suffering's over. Persecution's over. Death, no more. What a day that will be. Paul, he got to see the risen Christ with his own eyes. And it motivated him to do a lot of things differently and to think differently about a lot of things, as we see in this passage. Turned his whole life around, changed all his goals. In the same way, we haven't seen him yet, but the motivation to see him is the same. We are motivated to obey because we know what's coming and we know what he's given us in Christ already. And it'll be worth it all when we see him. So, how should this passage change our thinking? It should really cause us to have a renewed zeal in ourselves for pursuing the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus. Just to hear, to read this this eminent apostle saying, I just want to know him. That, ought to stir, that stirs my heart. I don't know if it does yours or not. To this eminent apostle who we would say knows far more, not only about Jesus, but knows far more experientially about Jesus than I do, he's still saying, I just want to know him. And this passage should cause us to examine our own knowledge of Christ too. Do we just know? Is our knowledge just knowledge about Christ without actually knowing Him? Do you, just, do you just know what you know because you read about it and that's as far as it's gone? Do you just know what you've heard a preacher say? Or do we actually experience these benefits that Christ bought for us? Do you have joy over what you know? Do you have a feeling of genuine rest in your soul, knowing that Christ has paid it all? Do you have satisfaction in what Christ has done? God is satisfied, are you? Do you have delight in the Lord Jesus? Do we experience all over these things that we know? And I would just encourage you, if, if you're saying today, if you're honestly saying I really don't feel anything over the truths that I know. Don't just assume that it's your personality or something. You, you know, some people say, well, 
I'm just not really all that much of a joyful person. Um, I guess that's just how it's going to be in my life. That's how I'm wired. I'm just not going to experience the type of delight that I see in other people. No, I don't think that's the case. I think we cry out to God and ask him to help us realize what we actually have. He's given us this gift, and perhaps we don't exactly know yet what we really have. So ask him to help you experience the weight of what you know. Ask him to give you the appropriate emotions and affections that are appropriate outcomes of what you know you have. And ultimately, it's not about emotions or emotionalism, but it it is about knowing him on a level above textbook or regurgitated knowledge. It's savoring him for yourself. It's enjoying him. It's feasting on him. It's tasting his goodness. It's the difference between tasting honey, right, and just reading about it. So, Think about what you have in Christ, believer. And just open up the sails. Let the wind carry you. Be bold as a lion. You have the infinite riches of Christ in your account. If we could open up our spiritual app on our account and see how much riches I have in my spiritual account, our phone would explode because the numbers are just going... Millions, billions, gazillions. Christ's righteousness is on your account. Realize what you have. John MacArthur, he said this, What do believers gain by their union with Christ? The knowledge of Christ in their identification with Him. The righteousness of Christ imputed to them in justification. The power of Christ for their sanctification participation in the sufferings of Christ and sharing Christ's glory in their glorification. And then he says, no wonder Paul gladly exchanged the religious credits in his loss column for the surpassing benefits of knowing Christ. I pray that we all would come to know him today. Do you know him? If you're a Christian, I pray that you would desire what Paul desired. If you have an ESV Bible, read it out loud with me. Again, our two verses. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Are you longing for those things? And if you're not a Christian today, I pray essentially the same thing for you, just on a more foundational level, that you would realize the uselessness of where you came from or your own goodness, your own good works, and that you would leave those things like rubbish and come to Christ. And rely on his goodness. Paul figured it out and he's trying to tell us here. Your goodness gets you nowhere. It's like a filthy rag before God. 
Come to Christ by faith and he'll give you God's righteousness. I pray that you would know him in that way. So as I close, listen to God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to what God himself says is worth more than anything else. What is worth boasting about? Riches? Might? Wisdom? Listen to what he said. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For, thee, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let him boast in this, that he understands and knows me. We sang it earlier. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for making yourself known. Thank you for sending your son to the earth and speaking through him. Thank you for giving us a Bible to know what he said and what he did and what he accomplished on our behalf. Thank you that you are working through us with resurrection power. Lord, help us to really know Christ by experience, not just regurgitate things that others have told us about him, but to really savor him for ourselves. Turn the truths that we know about Christ into experiential truths where we know the joy and the peace and the rest and the boldness and the courage and the resolve and the perseverance and so much more that ought to come from all the doctrines that we believe. Make it so in us, Lord, for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.